Welcome to episode 12 of the Haskell Cast. I'm Chris Forno, and my co-host is Alp Mistanaguluri. Our guest today is Neil Mitchell. Neil is the creator of Hoogle, HLint, Shake, and many other tools you might already use in your day-to-day Haskell development. He's authored papers on build systems, super compilation, uh, and a number of program analysis topics that you can find on his website, ndmitchell.com. Welcome, Neil. Welcome. Thanks very much. So I'd like to get right into um, your probably most popular package, if I can make that guess, um, and that's Google, which is getting millions of queries a year by, at this point, I imagine. I think it's something like that, yeah, around a million. So the the first question I had when I knew I'd get a chance to talk to you is, uh, what's left to get all of Hackage into the index? Well, so with Google, there are actually two versions running on the Haskell.org server. There's Haskell.org slash Hoogle, which is a version of Hoogle 4. And there's Hoogle.Haskell.org, which is a version of Hoogle 5. So uh, Hoogle 4 does just the packages in the Haskell platform. I don't think it's been updated. Whereas Hoogle.Haskell.org actually does all of Stackage. So the interesting part is Hackage, if you will. Um, And that gets updated every night. So if you go to Hoogle.Haskell.org, you can actually already get most of stackage, most of hackage index for you. Downside is because it's uh, the type search isn't nearly as good, and so I guess you can have uh, good Hoogle for a smaller subset or bad Hoogle for all of stackage. At the moment, uh, you have to make the choice. Hopefully, at some point, I'll get the type search migrated over properly, and then you'll have everything. Okay, about the type search. Um... Uh, well, I know you've written about it, but uh, could you just give an overview of uh, how it works, how you actually manage to do some fuzzy search of uh, type signatures? Uh, sure. So, so I've, I've actually so there have been five versions of Hoogle, and they've all done it entirely differently. <laughs> um, so, so, so there are a lot of kind of design space, or there are a lot of options in this design space. I'm still figuring it out. So. Uh, one of the the kind of obvious approach is to build a graph of all the type signatures and move around it. So figure out where you start based on what the user asked for and then see which kind of risks are the one they asked for. The problem with that is it's very easy to make a huge graph. So you have to have some way of trimming the links, reducing the possibilities available. Google for does it. Uh, there's a graph for the result type for all argument types. And essentially, with Hoogle 4, you get landed at the closest node in the result and at the closest node in the argument for each of the arguments. You walk around building up functions have a result like the result you asked for, argument like one of the arguments you asked for. And then there's a post-processing step which says, oh, I've kind of got enough. I've had map suggested as a result. And I've had Map's first argument and Map's second argument suggested as I've got enough to suggest Map to the user. Uh, yes. So the the problem is that Google Four takes a really long time to build databases. So while you can actually run Google Four at the level of stackage, it takes something like eight hours to build the graphs it needs. Um, 
also takes a lot of memory and a lot of disk space. Google 5 uses a much simpler algorithm. So the idea there is it does a linear search of all the type signatures in, uh, but it does really, really, really quick linear search. So essentially each type gets given um, bits. Each entire type signature gets broken down to 64 bits, which say things like uh, parity, how polymorphic or abstract it is, how uh, deeply nested the type constructors are, things like that, which are kind of the type signature, but more a description of the shape of the type signature. And then it also gets, a, each uh, type also gets tagged with its uh, type constructors. So the idea is if you have something that takes uh, and a um, Blaze HTML settings options, then chances are that if you search for something that has a list, you'll want something which doesn't also require a Blaze HTML settings options, because that seems a bit common. Whereas if you search for something with Blaze HTML settings options, you basically just want a list of everything with that in it, because you expect that to be like four things. Moving to a more popularity model than a um, than a raw matching or kind of type theoretic model. And so the Google 5 approach really requires a bigger database of functions to function because it's doing kind of relative popularity. And then Google 5 basically just zips down this list very, very, very quickly, uh, identifies things that are likely to be good matches, and then does a more expensive match uh, for things it thinks are plausible candidates. I haven't really finished the more expensive match. So with Google 5 at the moment, you're really seeing things that are stupid to suggest rather than it's uh, suggesting of things that are actually good to suggest. Uh, has Google uh, been used widely since the beginning? Uh, I, I know today it's a pretty standout tool, but uh, uh, since when has it been the case, basically? I don't know. So I first wrote Google in uh, 2004. So uh, the first version of Google was actually written in JavaScript. So it was a web page and the actual searching happened in the web page. So I don't know how many people are using that at all. And even for the older versions, I don't have super great logs. So now with Google 5, I actually have daily logs of how many people are using Google 5. So uh, Google 5 on google.haskell.org has about... Um, 150 users per day, and they, on average, do about 2,000 queries per day. Uh, but I expect at the moment more people are using Haskell.org slash Google. So uh, going a little bit beyond Google, um, if you were to try to set up a sort of global Haskell code search, you know, there used to be Google code search, and it was shut down, and I, I think now there's GitHub and maybe some other options, but they're they're quite lacking, especially when it comes to Google's sophistication with type signatures. Have you have you thought about this and what problems would be involved? Have you have you tried it, or do you know of anything uh, on the horizon? Um, so 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 I've heard I've talked to various people about it at various times. I've suggested things, but I almost wonder if it's a, an idea whose time has passed. So in a way, Stack Overflow has become that database. So when I want to know how do I use doing this thing, 
especially when it's not Haskell, when it's a language I'm on a day-to-day -day basis. I just Google it, and you can very quickly write a hundred-line Python script, which is from Stack Overflow put together. It's more interesting to use this function, but should I be using this function? Has everyone else decided this function is a really bad idea for reasons I have no idea about? So if you do a code search, you would get to perhaps the bad ideas rather than the good ideas. So HLint is another quite popular program that I, I'm very impressed by uh, the, the quality of the suggestions um, that come out of it. How many, how many rules uh, do you estimate are inside of it now? Uh, so HLint has a database of rules that are configured as kind of replace this left-hand side of the expression with this right-hand side of the expression. And I think there are order of 500 rules in that. And then it also has uh, 12 modules, which are just here is a Haskell source X syntax free, produce another one. Or sophisticated analysis like duplicate detection, suggesting new type instead of data. Uh, so there are 12 of those, and but they correspond to maybe 100 different uh, or suggestions that they come out, but they're much more sophisticated suggestions. So I guess probably about 600, 700 in total. Okay. Have you found that the code has gotten more complicated and more difficult to maintain as you've increased the number of rules, or has it kind of reached a steady a steady state where adding a rule is self-contained? Well, so for the 500 expression rules, they are literally just an entry in a YAML file that says the left-hand side is this expression, the right-hand side is this expression. So those are the trivial to add. Uh, for the other rules, uh, they're in 12 modules, and each module is has a single export point that says whether it's a rule that by declaration or module at a time, or requires the comments as well. And again, that's been a pretty solid abstraction barrier. We needed to change that in many years. So I, I don't think it's uh, increased in complexity very much at all. So what's the most interesting uh, slash extreme rule uh, that you, you've seen people implement? Uh, what, what's the kind of, uh, when you take it really far, uh, where, where, where can you go? Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I think there are two answers to that. So uh, the recursion rules are pretty cool. So there's one module of hints uh, dedicated to going, oh, you should have written a fold L or a fold R or a filter M or a fold M. And these basically just take the uh, a set of recursive definitions and try and slot them into the pattern of these recursive combinators. And that blows my mind because... Um, to a large extent, I forgot how to write a fold out. I just write it with recursion and let HLint tell me what I should have written. That's pretty nice. Well, on the other extreme, uh, so I once noticed that someone used um, essentially take 10 of X's, some string that was 10 characters long, and thought, aha, that should be an is prefix of. Um, so I added this rule that essentially spots is equals a string that is 10 characters long and turns it into an is prefix of, which I thought was a really cool rule. Unfortunately, 
at various points we've tried to prove all the rules in HLint are correct. Uh, and that one has so many corner cases. So for example, if the string is less than 10 characters, then the take n, take only a prefix of it, uh, will we'll take less than n characters, whereas is prefix of will take, will declare it false because it isn't at least 10 characters long. So that, so I guess that's the most complicated rule I've tried to put in and I've had to keep taking it out because it feels intuitively correct and it's probably usually right, but it breaks down, especially when trying to prove it for me. You mentioned uh, the rules um, are in a YAML file. These are extensible, presumably, if somebody wanted to add their own for their own project. Uh, indeed. So, so actually, that's what I've been working on for the last few months. So they used to be in a Haskell configuration file, and it was a horrible syntax. And it was extensible in theory, but not that many people had done it. Uh, the next release of HLint, which I think should be about a week, will have them in a YAML file. And the idea is, much like stylish Haskell lets you write a Haskell.yaml file in your project directory, which supplies additional configuration settings, HLint does the same and will automatically pick it up. So you can have a .hlint.yaml. Uh, so one rule I quite like using is you can essentially suggest to replace the phrase, the uh, expression unsafe perform IO with an, just a warning message saying, don't do this. And then you can list the exceptions to that rule. So where you don't want to have that as a warning. And you can use that as a way of kind of having a single file which it exhaustively enumerates all your uses of unsafe form IO or similar functions like unsafe coerce. So it can make review code review a lot easier. The big question is how much do you use HLint yourself? Is it is it part of your build system on every project? Um I, I would say no. So so I usually have it set up so I can run HLint when I want, but um I tend to just run HLint now and again and go through and see what it's spotted. Um, so, for example, I ran HLint on Shake the other day and did find a bunch of things where I go, it's like, oh, that wasn't a very good idea. I should fix it. It isn't a standard part of my Travis tests. That said, it's something I've been looking to change. Uh, so I was talking to Herbert yesterday, HLint, uh, easier to install on Travis. So at the moment, it takes about to compile the necessary dependencies for HLint and HLint itself on Travis. So that's quite a big slowdown to a turnaround on your continuous integration. We have HLint hosted somewhere and pull it down into Travis. Uh, then you, then I would probably add it as a standard part of my workflow. This is a standard part of my workflow for HLint itself. And if HLint has any HLint warnings, it fails. Uh, but for others, I tend to use it ad hoc rather than all the time. Um, you mentioned continuous integration, and I saw that there's something coming um, called Bake, well, or it may be out there in, in use already, uh, that finally makes me understand the name Shake for the uh, build system that you've worked on. Uh, so, so I will say I, I'm not sure Bake is ever coming. So uh, it was something I did for a need I used to have, but don't really have anymore. Uh, a couple of companies have deployed Bake in production, well, but I don't actually really use it to any great extent. Um, it's a project I'm likely to pass on. I will say the name Bake is an excellent addition to the team of Shake and Bake, uh, but it was Andy Adams-Moran who came up with the name. 
I am terrible at naming things. And in fact, it was uh, Raphael Montalotissi who came up with the name Shake. I, yeah, I'm terrible at naming things. So let's talk about uh, Shake then, because, you know, the first impression some people may have is, oh, no, yet another build system. Um, but you have written extensively about this and seem to have some unique perspective on this, especially dealing with some rather large build systems you worked on. So maybe you can explain the motivation and why it's different. So so the first motivation was uh, when I got to Standard Chartered, there was a morass of, of make files that was basically sucking everyone's time and killing productivity. So I thought, how do I go about solving this? And, you know, conscious reaction by then to every problem was a Haskell programming language, a Haskell-based domain-specific language. Um, it was only a few years later that I realized the innovation I'd kind of made without thinking about it was making the build system monadic instead of applicative. Uh, so what do I mean by monadic instead of applicative? Uh, so most build systems uh, in some configuration data, build a graph, and then execute the graph. So you've got three very distinct phases. In Shake, there is no build a graph and then execute it. And in fact, there is no possibility to build a static graph describing a Shake computation. You have to be forever the graph and evaluating more because the values on the graph, what the shape of the graph looks like, which you can't do if you're gonna only do the value part after you've built the graph. If you think about this in terms of the Haskell type classes, in an applicative computation, computation set out for you in advance, whereas in a monadic computation, you can essentially run an I.O. action of that I.O. action and then decide whether you're going to run another I.O. action or not. I think that's where the power of shake comes from. I've seen you go through uh, a lot of trouble to make it really fast and really uh, worth uh, working on. So could you give give us some idea about uh, how it performs compared to uh, others, other well-known uh, build systems? Uh, sure. Uh, so for, th for, for the problems that things like make tackle, probably optimal, but the way you express the build system typically ends up meaning you have to make compromises so that the end result ha uh, doesn't perform very well or does aren't really required but are required to satisfy make uh, so the uh, open source build system is called ninja it's either there's even a book about um, or there's a chapter in a book on performance of open source programs that describes how ninja is the fastest build system in the world uh, see you know, it's nice to have a target nice to have something to measure about against I implemented a mode in Shake that can execute Ninja files. And it's actually in the Shake continuous integration tests that it checks out Ninja, then builds Ninja using the Ninja build rules, but with Shake. And if Shake is slower than Ninja, then my continuous integration tests fail. So yes, uh, Shake is fast, but it, that's not what, how I sell it. I, I more use it as fast to stop people from going, ah, there's Haskell, it must be slow. Yeah, that's exactly why I asked. So, Neil, having not used Shake, I did notice something else about it that reminded me of Redo, and that was um, automatically determining the dependencies of a build target. 
Could you explain that? Um, so, so I wouldn't say it was automatic in any sense. You still have to list them, but you only have to list them as you're building it. Uh, so Shake came up with the idea of Shake and this monadic dependencies entirely independently. But when I went to do a literature review, when I was writing a paper for ICFP, I came across Redo, which is the exact same theoretical idea. So, so yeah, it's, it's very much like Redo. I would say Redo was the closest to Shake, if you exclude all the Shake derivatives. Shake derivatives. Uh, which which one? Can you just briefly, maybe which ones are out there? Uh, so, uh, so I guess derivative maybe um, a slightly. Um, Type. But I mean, uh, you have things like Jenga for OCaml, you have Pluto for Java, and you have several other variants of Shake. So originally, Shake was closed source, um, but I described it in a presentation. And at that point, several people went away and wrote their own versions of Shake. So there's, uh, for example, OpenShake on Package. So it's fast and uh, allows you to build reusable uh, bits of build systems and combine them together. Uh, so this is all nice, but how easy is it for people to adopt it? Uh, is there support for uh, like standard uh, tooling, uh, standard compilers like uh, C compilers and GHC, obviously, as well, I imagine? Uh, so Jake so itself has no support for anything. It just runs command lines or not even command lines. It makes it easy to run command lines, but you don't have to use it to write a build system. There are a couple of packages on Hackage, I think four or five, that have rules for either C compilers or things like GCC, but customized or cross-platform or for embedded. And there's one for the NAVR microcontroller. Um, I found that most projects uh, off-the-shelf rules for things like C. Every company that has that has gone to the effort of using a custom build tool has probably done several other custom things on the way to using a custom build tool, which means the standard GCC invocation, they've added some flags or done some other funny business with it. I haven't really felt the desire to add those, the kind of almost CMake-like support out of the box for these tools. Uh, it's certainly possible to add, and uh, I would welcome deriv- uh, packages building on Shake and providing things. It's uh, always necessary. Uh, and I will say the hardest files to compile by a long way are Haskell files, if you're using any build system, on the basis that Haskell has a model where Essentially, you depend on the HI files you import, your linking depends on the transitive closure of the O files, and every command line produces two outputs. Uh, and they don't necessarily change in sync, and some may not change in various combinations. So um, building with your build system, that's probably the acid test of any build system. So for someone who's interested to try it out, who basically the build system is a cabal file or a stack um, file. What uh, What's the sort of way to get started and, and how, how to hook it in? So, so I guess I would say if your build system is simple enough to be a cabal file or a stack file, don't use shade. If you do want to try it f- uh, for real and maybe you've got a particular problem, like you're trying to integrate C-sharp with some Haskell code in some weird way that no one's done before, uh, then usually the first step is to figure out 
what command lines you need to invoke just in the shell script for a batch file to get your project building. And often the file names will tell you what the dependencies are and you can run the file, the scripts individually, look what they produce and turning that into a shake script typically isn't too hard. So what's, yeah, I know you solved um, an initial problem with it when you were at Standard Chartered. What has kept you going and motivated on improving this? Because I've seen you've given a number of talks about this and build systems in general. Uh, what's still left to be done? Uh, so, so the big target we're focusing on at the moment is um, converting the GHC build system into Shake. Called Hadrian, the, uh, Andre Mokoff has been running for about a year now. And he can build GAG with Shake and the code does the make files, but it is much clearer, it's much simpler. So GHC's build system has been through four major rewrites, but even after all this time, but not modifiable. Uh, and there's a very small bus factor on the build system uh, and no one's gonna want to touch it. It's kind of write-only code. So this is, let's show that we can actually do a project as complicated as GHC. I think that build systems are an excellent first foot in the door for commercial companies wanting to use Haskell. So often, and deploy in production, because now if the garbage collector goes crazy or if it seg faults on the particular chipset you're using on the grid, you've got a real problem. And use your build tools for it. It's only exposed to your developers. And if it goes wrong, these are the technical experts in your company. And often you can only have, you only need one or two people in the team who understand the build system. So it's a great uh, kind of gateway drug for Haskell. I hope is once you've got Haskell on all the developers' machines, and once they, they're starting to play around with it, it's like, oh, this isn't as scary as I thought. Then they'll start to think, oh, maybe I can use it for other problems we've got. I guess that's one thing that motivates me on Shake. You gave me the perfect uh, segue into something else I wanted to talk about with you, and that is space leaks. And when I first got started trying to deploy Haskell into production, they terrified me, right? It's like this unknown condition you need to be a compiler expert on to diagnose, at least that's what it seems like at first. I saw the slides you had to what looked like a great talk kind of detailing how to deal with this. Maybe you could just repeat a little bit of it here. Certainly. So, I mean, as you say, uh, space leaks terrify me uh, because they are that kind of ticking time bomb that only goes off in the wrong circumstances. And the wrong circumstances are always when it's absolutely critical in production and it's a disaster. Uh, so the classic example of a space leak is, uh, is the sum function. Sum in Haskell. Assume the list lazily, so it'll operate in constant memory usage. Uh, but if you do something like bold L plus, simulate the number that you, the, the kind of running total of the sum, if you don't put a strictness annotation on that, just a single number, you'll store a list equal to the length of the entire list, but of plus nodes rather than of list nodes. So you have Haskell doing a great laziness, doing a great job to get you constant space usage apart from the accumulator. And the key property of space leaks is difficult to track down and spot. But actually, once you once you found it, once someone tells you, ah, this line of code leaks, 
It's usually a single exclamation mark or a fold alpine. So it's a, it's a very weird thing. It is trivial. Finding it is very hard. So train uh, with Tom Ellis about this. And we were trying to come up with, well, what would be the runtime mechanisms we need to add to DHC to automatically detect space leaks? Kept kind of iterating through what we would do. Well, you could um, back, and when it starts repeating, you've probably got a space leak. You could find the largest call stack at any point in your program. It's likely to be a space leak. And as we refined these, we got to this proposal for what should be implemented in GHC. For a few days, and I realized actually most of it's already in GHC if you just tweak the details. And that detail is essentially bound the stack usage because most space leaks show up as excessive stack usage. Created, but when they're being kind of reduced down at the end. So in the sum example, you build a huge uh, thunk, uh, a huge delayed expression when you're going through the list. But at the end of the list, when you force it, use of, of stack usage so in, in effect we detect when space leaks rather than when they get created and with just this kind of one flag so limit the stack you can put it in your test suite and then if you ever introduce a space leak you'll get an early warning detection you'll fail your test immediately so that's the basic idea behind it and with, with that kind of trick up my sleeve i feel a lot more confident about recommending haskell for production use cases and and a lot of these, it seems like you encountered that there's a lot of these uh, space leaks out there, even in popular libraries in some cases, that go undetected for quite a while. Uh, yep. So, I mean, essentially, when when you turn on this trick, you're testing both your code and any code you import. So, for example, there have been space leaks in the maximum function in the prelude. Uh, so when the applicative... Uh, got through the resulting code had a space leak in maximum recently uh we found a space leak in the statistics library when you try and draw a kernel density estimator so this is code that's mostly working on unboxed mutable arrays by uh, performance experts like brian o'sullivan and yet there's a space leak in it under certain conditions and this completely trashes the performance and everything so yeah they're everywhere Okay, so we've been talking about uh, space leaks and performance, and you did some uh, some work on supercompilation, I believe, during maybe during your PhD or after. Uh, yeah, uh, not sure. PhD and after actually uh, as well. So the the project was called Superior, uh, I believe. Um, so could you tell us a bit about it and and what kind of uh, uh, results you got? Uh, maybe give an overview of uh, this bit of research. Uh, so, so the basic idea is I wanted to write a compiler uh, that produced code that was faster than GHC. And if you look at the insides of GHC, there are lots and lots of optimizations. And the idea is that each optimization will trigger in. But the combined effect is that together they destroy all programs. And a lot of these optimizations have a lot of heuristic -y numbers, like we should push a let under a lambda and the type suggests this, and there's an inclination of this. And these these are one over many years, which is why it's so effective. But also these tuning knobs, um, 
they always make me worried because what was appropriate in the day back when we were using Haskell 98, now we're using things like lenses. I was also seeing this trend towards essentially everyone putting in line pragmas on everything. And I didn't like that. I mean, you know, as a, as a library author, I think the compiler should figure that out for me, not myself. So I started working on a way of program and basically doing a single simple optimization, but which had the combined effect of almost all these optimizations together. Um, as I look deeper, some sense uh, coming back to the classic topic of supercompilation. So supercompilation in the program at compile time. So the simplification rules roughly correspond to the evaluation rules of GHC core. Uh, and when you run the program, program back, and that residual program you can run at runtime, for certain problems you can do really well. The real problem is that if you're running a compiled time, it had better terminate. And not only had it better terminate, it had better terminate before the uh, sun dies of heat death. Basic problem of supercompilation. Can you scale it up? So I scaled it up. Uh, a bit. It, it, the techniques were still useful. Uh, Max Bolingbrook scaled it up even further. And then I did some more work to tweak the termination conditions in a way that they can be tested a lot faster. Unfortunately, rather unsatisfyingly, at the, at the end of all this, it doesn't really work for large programs. It will work for pe small pieces of small programs, but it's not. A, I, it's so conceptually beautiful that if someone was to put further on it, you know, if we throw another 10 PhD students at it, they might figure out how to make it scale up to large programs. Unfortunately, not yet. It's still to be solved. Um, so you, you've worked on other things like Catch. Uh, so maybe you can say a quick word about, uh, about this project. This was a part of your PhD as well, wasn't it? Indeed. So uh, when I was in academia, obviously, the group I was in, it kind of focused on static analysis programs. And that was a really interesting area for me because most of these problems are the halting problem and can't be solved. But the idea was, can you take a problem that's useful, techniques that are well known and chip off an interesting bit? So for catch, the idea was, can you get rid of all pattern match errors, make error from your Haskell programs? was for programs that I could get into my checker, it usually did a very good job and could tell you if there were errors. So uh, HS color program, I did an analysis on that and I found uh, four potential, when I then kind of looked in as a human, I found I could trigger three of them and fourth one, I wasn't quite sure how to trigger it, but it was certainly dodgy code and could be cleaned up. More interesting is that HS Color ran as a web service on the uh, Haskell Paste it website. And so, using my knowledge of where these bugs were, you'd actually go and crash the HPaste website. A way of doing uh, security vulnerability scanning for Haskell programs when deployed in certain ways. Um, the weakness, though, was that I was using the compiler as my front end. Uh, which was based on the NHC compiler. And to a first approximation, Haskell no longer has more than one compiler. It's GHC or nothing. 
handful of programs I could actually meaningfully compile and test. Uh, but you know, I got things like Xmonad and the containers libraries and showed they were safe, or I think in one case fixed a couple of bugs in them. So on static analysis, I saw a comment on your site or your blog about doing some fuzz testing on your new uh, HexML uh, library or processor. I, I think it's a parsing library, correct? What what was that experience like? Uh, so I wrote some C code for XML parsing, released it open source, um, and then uh, almost immediately Austin site kind of came back to me and said, "This code is garbage. Uh, it, it overruns pointers. It uh, it is not it isn't bound safe and everything." Um, and he was very kind to help me through the entire process of setting it up with fuzz testing uh, and showing me how he how he was able to show my code was garbage, which um, it was. Uh, and it was a very sobering experience. I've written lots of C code before, but I've never sent it through a fuzz tester before. And now I'm fairly sure that all the code I wrote without sending it through a fuzz tester has exploitable bugs in it, um, which this late in my career uh but you run afl it spits out lots of errors you fix them run again and now my continuous integration testing automatically runs afl on all new hexml check-ins okay so so we've talked about static analysis um but one thing i really miss when i'm working with haskell uh that was much easier with say lisp is sort of runtime analysis of an uh, of an unfinished program and i see that you have uh something called ghcid which is like a ghci type of ide that seems to address that problem uh is that the case or maybe you can explain it uh, so i would say it was more like a a, a replacement for ides so uh in an IDE, the big feature to me is the list of active errors, so syntax errors and type errors you've got. The idea is it uh, starts GHCI on a program and basically pokes GHCI underneath and keep it in a fixed size terminal window so you can always see what errors are in your program. So I think of it as a poor man's IDE based on the observation that there are lots of good Haskell IDEs demo videos but none of them ever work on my computer and none of them ever work, seem to work for many people because often they're tied to a specific ghc version the whole eclipse framework and so i'm really looking forward to the day where i can tear up my copy of ghc id and just use a standard editor which has good hassle support but none of them ever seem to work for me so why do you tend to write uh your code as libraries instead of programs shake being a good example um as well as i i think you mentioned at one point that bake as well as nsis are also libraries uh well i will also say that google ghcid and agent are also libraries uh so essentially if you write any program interesting logic at uh, some point someone will want to invoke that logic in a different way uh, and also, I found it a much cleaner separation. So even when I'm writing, which is a single library, what I'm doing is thinking, if I was to expose this as a library on its own, what would I want it to do? A library should do as much as it can for the user without doing anything that will get confusing. 
reusable and maximally easy to reuse without the person using it having to think too hard. In a way, you can think of uh, a library as an intelligence barrier. You'd be very clever, but outside the library, assume whoever is using your library and will try and get it wrong if they can. But honestly, I do that inside the library as well. So at each layer, I'm trying to think, how can I avoid people making mistakes with this module? I have vested it to test with myself because I'm using these modules from elsewhere in my program. Yeah, I, I think it was a, I think it was probably about five years ago I realized there are no programs. There are only libraries that have been abstracted out to a single list of string in, list of string out function. Yeah, in, interesting perspective. So you guys mentioned uh, NSIS. Um, so I've seen that you've uh, worked on various uh, Windows-related uh, projects. For example, uh, making Haskell and GHC in particular uh, be easy to install on Windows and, and so on. So could you maybe uh, give us a little status on uh, Haskell support on Windows? Um, it used to be a second-class system. A lot of libraries would require things like configure scripts, which are very hard to get working on Windows. Uh, thanks to uh, MinGHC, we kind of mostly solved that, and Stack then took those ideas and kind of productionized them even greater. So it used to be really embarrassing that download the Haskell platform on Windows, but if you ever required a program that required a newer version of the network library, there's a chance you were going to hose your Haskell installation at that point and have to scrub it from your disk and start again from scratch. So it's now actually a reasonable story on uh, Windows. Um, did you? I, I'm actually I'm surprised you didn't want to ask anything about Tag Soup before you started, since you wrote your own um, sort of H malformed HTML parser. Yeah, I've used Tag Soup a lot in the past, uh, and at some point I wanted to see if I could write something with uh, Atoparsec uh, that could be. Uh, faster, but while being as, as smart, because Neil has, has put some tricks in, in uh, TechSoup uh, that were nice and I shamelessly uh, stole. I wouldn't describe TechSoup as fast or particularly nice. I wrote it quite a long time ago and I haven't really, you know, I, I feel there's a whole new major version required before it's kind of a library I would stand behind now. Um, even the byte string version of tag soup converts things to a linked list of characters before doing it. I've, I've been thinking for a while about how you could do space reallocation um, of tag soup parsing, and that was something I wanted to try. Many of the ideas that I had for tag soup into hexmail, which is not for tag soup, but for perfectly formed XML. That happened to be what I was needed to do at the time. Yeah, but to, to be fair, it's a very uh, hard business to write XML or HTML parsers because you have to accept the actual grammar, uh, but you also have to accept this whole bunch of very common exceptions that you'll find everywhere. So, tricky business. When I first wrote TagSip, that was definitely true. Now, I think if you just followed the HTML5 lexing spec, you'd probably get a reasonable way. You need a few tweaks, but... There was absolutely no idea of what standard HTML was. Um, so, so Neil, uh, so we've talked about everything you've done since you've discovered Haskell, but uh, 
uh, we don't know yet how what's your story what led you to uh, Haskell and why did you uh, stick around uh, so I went to York University for a four-year undergrad to do a master's and then a four-year PhD uh, so my third year project of my undergrad was with a guy called Colin Runciman who's an incredibly smart guy and also one of the people on the Haskell 98 so he's been doing functional programming almost certainly before I was born uh, and He, he taught a class and it seemed very elegant. He um, grasped that it could be used for more than a degree, uh, but it was fun. So I stuck around and did a fourth year project with him. Uh, and that was fun. So I then signed up for a PhD with him for another four years. Um, but I would say even at the end of PhD, ostensibly in Haskell-y stuff, I didn't know all that much Haskell the learning experience i would say it was probably another three years before i even figured out how to use monads properly and was very much into the simple easy functional programming equational rewriting all that kind of stuff and i think that's kind of very much directed how i treat haskell now it's a it's a simple beautiful thing it's not complicated um so powerful was something that took me years to appreciate There's an interesting anecdote I think I saw on one of your slides that uh, you wrote Hoogle uh, for yourself to help you learn Haskell. Is that correct? Uh, indeed. And so, I mean, the first version of Hoogle was written in JavaScript because I didn't know enough Haskell at the time to write Hoogle in Haskell because it, it would have required writing a web server. And in fact, back in 2004, when I was writing the first version of Hoogle, that wasn't an easy thing to find in the Haskell world. So, yeah, it, I definitely learned Google, Haskell as I was going. I mean, I think it was probably about 2006 before I figured out how to read a file using Haskell. So for your day-to-day -day programming, um, you work in the finance industry still, is that correct? Uh, yep. Uh, I was at Standard Chartered for eight years, and I moved about six months to Barclays. And and that seems to be uh, – the finance industry is this interesting uh, thing in the Haskell community because it seems to employ a lot of the programmers, but we don't really hear much of what they're working on except for the things that get released. Um, and I, I won't push you too much on it, but can you describe uh, anything that's not confidential about what you work on? Uh, so rather than describe what I work on, perhaps I'll say I think why finance is such an interesting role for Haskell programmers. Uh, so in a way, finance uh, has a big – successes in finance are multiplied. So if finance companies can get a head start on something, even 5% more productive, that will translate to a much bigger win than it would in other places like you know, if Apple have to hire an extra 5% of engineers. If a uh, financial company sooner to market than someone else, that can be a huge amount of results in them taking the entire marketplace for decades. Why finance companies uh, are, are interested in Haskell, I would say you've probably not seen very much come out of. Uh, so even the projects you've seen me release recently, These are my personal time projects, as distinct from what I do at work. And unfortunately, finance is a quite secretive industry, um, which I think is one of the um, of working in finance. I mean, 
I'm an open source guy. I'd love to do all my development in the open, possible for a bank. What's it like working with large-scale Haskell deployments? What sort of problems, aside from building them, are unique at that level? So I don't think there are any problems that are unique at those levels, but I think some of the things we commonly see are problems at smaller levels and we just hit them worse. So uh, I was making a list just in my head of the things I'd like to see fixed. And I got to um, for packages would be useful. So currently, if you want, if I want to set up GHC on my laptop and three, four hours compiling packages, for example, uh, related to that, compile times are pretty huge uh, for GHC. It is not a fast compiler. So I originally started with WinHugs, and there you could compile tens of thousands of modules, millions of lines in about five seconds. GHC is fantastically slower than that. And yes, it does the code optimization, but I don't always want the code optimization. And it certainly isn't as fast as WinHugs if you ignore that. And the final thing that poss possibly is more unique to large deployments is that the binary size of Haskell programs is huge. If you look at uh, something like, uh, I think it's Mirage on OCaml, uh, an entire OS networking stack and the kernel into, if you look at uh, Hello World GHC, Meg, if you look at Hello World GHC web server, it's probably about 100 meg. Those are the three issues that disproportionately at larger scales. Sorry, how many, how many, how, what was the size of the Mirage uh, build? I, I think it's under 100K. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, the compile times. Uh, I think they've been uh, escalating up until uh, maybe GHC8. Uh, and, and it's probably uh, now a priority to get, uh, get them under control. Uh, uh, I don't know what's the status of that yet. Do you have any uh, uh, any input on that? Well, then I think it's fantastic work. So even on my continuous integration tests, I can see that I some of my projects here compile every compiler from GHC7 to GHC8, and you can just see each one taking longer and longer and longer in the continuous integration. So I, I think this is good work. I would almost be surprised if they don't find some space leaks. Yeah, speaking of, of compilation time, which I've been noticing as well, I, I wonder, is it because of my use of template Haskell or or am I just feeling like things are getting slower or are they building up? So um, question for you, kind of off topic, is your opinion on template Haskell? I mean, we've talked a lot about static analysis and program transformation and so on. Uh, this is a sort of polarizing issue, and maybe you don't want to answer it, but uh, what's what's your view on it? Uh, so I will say I don't think, not answering it because it's polarizing is the kind of thing I do, maybe alas. Uh, so template Haskell, I don't like it very much. Uh, it seems like there should be a beautiful notion of template Haskell in the Lambda calculus. But it feels like what we've got is a way to drop things in GHC's internal syntax tree and can really predict. So, I mean, one of the things about template Haskell, if you wrote any code, 
four times in every compilation. And the fact it does that just kind of suggests that it's not really at the right place. It's not implemented in the right way. Lisp does this beautifully with its homo, homo iconic nature. I've never really bought it yet. Have you ever thought about any uh, any alternative uh, in the design space, so to speak? Um, so I wondered if Haskell could have better support for generated Haskell files. So the idea that at the top of a Haskell file, you could write a pragma that said, I was generated by running this command on these outputs. And then you could almost tell GHC, generator wants to produce a Haskell file. And then thereafter, GHC would automatically regenerate your Haskell file. But that would be much more Haskell, literal Haskell text that GHC passes, rather than trying to wire it into the compiler. Do you think part of the answer is to move uh, things into or really close to GHC? Uh, instead of having a very separate thing uh, that, uh, like you mentioned Idris, which has uh, support in, in the core. So uh, maybe, maybe not. So I've, I've often felt the GHC API has been both a blessing and a curse because uh, it's very much the internals of GHC for people to pick over. It's not, it wasn't ever designed as a library, and that really shows. So I think if maybe uh, GHC had a well-designed API, a very crisp and beautiful API, that you could build the tools like uh, type inference and all these things on top. Uh, so it doesn't have to be in the core of the compiler, but I think it would be more reusing small pieces rather than the current GHC API. So where do you see the next uh, tool or the next improvement that you or someone else could make uh, in Haskell development? Uh, what's, what's really an, an itch that you've been wanting to scratch but just haven't had the time for yet? Uh, so, so I would say it was IDEs. Um, there are lots of IDE-like things at the moment, so intro being a notable example, but they all seem a bit flaky, not production ready. They're all kind of that. And um, I, I think once we have an idea, that will make a difference and it will let beginners come to the language much more easily. Uh, so if you look at things like uh, Idris, IDE editing, IDE type features built in. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to emulate something like Idris. You 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 tend to gravitate towards, I, I guess if I had to describe your programming style, I would call you a toolsmith. You gravitate towards the sort of support role of building all the tools that help other software get built. What led you to that? Um, I don't think it was ever conscious, but I think, yes, I, I, I guess I see a tool role as a kind of enabler for other people. If, if you write a good tool, Uh, you can letting other people achieve more. And in a way, you know, if they use, if people are using Google to get more done faster, then I'm happy because I kind of feel I've contributed to that success. And also, I don't like inefficiency. The idea of manual processes, the idea of people looking things up in a book or doing a Google search or not quite getting the right answers 
or being frustrated by complicated code or kind of very easily solvable problems. And I guess they're the problems that I hit day to day, which is why I gravitate towards that side. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks very much for having me. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, it was very fun. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 12 of the Haskell Cast, recorded on April 2nd, 2017. For links and notes, visit www.haskellcast.com.